As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History. I'm your host, Will Clark, and this is episode 41, The September Massacres, part three. In the last episode, we asked the great question of Cluedo. Who done it? Who was responsible for the September massacres? Who was to blame for the bloodshed? Who was responsible for the inspiration and continuation of one of the bloodiest events of the entire revolution? The answers were murky. Some blamed the violent rhetoric of Marat and Danton, others the men of the commune. Yet more argued that the murders, being spontaneous and popular in nature, could not be blamed on any individual nor institution, and certainly couldn't have been stopped, even if someone had tried. This episode, the third and final instalment of the Dark Days of September, will be broken down into two key sections. The first will examine the reaction of everyday citizens to the bloodshed in the streets. Reactions that may not match your expectations. The second section will unpack the numerous ways these events altered the trajectory and in fact the character of the revolution. How it shaped the convention. How it realigned revolutionary politics. Perhaps most importantly, how it paved the way for the reign of terror. Before we get into it, a huge thank you to everyone who is helping to keep Grey History on the air. A warm welcome to the new Patreon supporters of the show. This includes the virtuous citizens, Asha, Yana and Swada, as well as the new true revolutionaries, Dana and Kevin. Also, a big thank you to Charles for increasing his pledge, as well as his messages of support over the last couple of years. Charles now joins Jeffrey, Cynthia, George, Brady, Tim and Mark as the fabulous champions of the people. Of course, a special call out to the extra generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Jinx, Eric and Christy. As always, thank you to everyone doing their bit to help keep the show going, including promoting the show on social media, leaving reviews and making one-off donations. I would give all of you a hug if I could, but since I can't, please accept this heartfelt thank you. Remember, if you're enjoying Grey History, if you want more Grey History, I need your support to make that a reality. Not someone else's, but yours. The next episode, episode 42, will be a bonus episode available exclusively for Patreon supporters of the show. The topic will be the Corsican Revolution, as voted on by Patreons, and I think you'll absolutely love it. So if you're not already helping to keep Grey History on the air, please support the podcast today. I've left my job to bring you more Grey History, but I won't be able to continue to do so without your help. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 41, The September Massacres, 
part three. Considering that you're listening to a history podcast on a very specific topic, I'm willing to bet that you've taken the time to draft numerous historical lists. By that, I mean I'm sure you've at least considered the list of historical figures you would like to have met, the ancient cities you would like to have explored, the major events you would like to have witnessed. Indeed, my historical lists, for the lack of a better term, are considerable, and in particular, there's no shortage of events that I would love to have been able to see firsthand. But when I think about it as an explorer of the past, I want to do more than just witness an event. I want to feel it as well. Why witness the fall of the Berlin Wall if you can't feel the jubilation and joy of the average Berliner? Why walk through the iconic streets of New York City on VE Day if you can't share the euphoria and excitement? Why watch a live broadcast of the moon landing, showing the very same footage we can go and watch right now, if you can't capture the sense of inspiration and awe that came with it? In history, we often study the tangible, the dates, the numbers, the words, the things that can be counted, tallied and measured. But we're emotional creatures. And for historical events, the good and the bad, the delightful and the repulsive, if we're to truly understand them, we need to at least try to ascertain how they must have felt. So, as a result of this, I've been thinking a lot recently about how the average Parisian may have felt in September 1792. What it must have been like to witness the fall of a centuries-old monarchy. What it must have been like to nervously anticipate an imminent foreign invasion. What it must have been like to feel ensnared and entrapped in ever-present plots and conspiracies. What it must have been like to witness your fellow citizens butcher hundreds of your countrymen. And this last point is a question I want you to ask yourself before we discuss the responses of everyday citizens to the massacres of September 1792. How do you think you would have responded? How would you have handled the bloody slaughter of some 1,200 prisoners? Would you have tried to stop them? Would you have watched them? Would you have carried about your day and simply glossed over the fact that you crossed a little stream of blood in the gutter as you walked to work? Would you have tuned out the cries for help and mercy from the victims just up the street? If you lived in Paris in September 1792, amongst all the chaos, uncertainty, fear, How do you think you, as an everyday citizen, would have responded? We're about to discuss the reactions of regular people, and some of these responses may very well surprise you.
let's start off with the perspectives that won't be too surprising. Amongst the bloodshed of September, some viewed the murders of perhaps 1,200 prisoners with disgust, with horror, with repugnance. We heard in episode 39 from Retif de la Breton, who claimed to witness the death of the Princess de Lamballe. Lamballe was the Queen's lady-in-waiting, who was brutally murdered, and perhaps even sexually assaulted, prior to having her head paraded through the city. In his own words, Breton described the scene as so horrific that such a thing had never offered itself to his imagination. In trying to leave, his legs failed him, and he fainted. Such horror was shared by another witness we've already heard from, the Scottish physician John Moore. Moore, who we heard from in the episode extra for episode 39, the one available to everyone, described the events as the most shocking crimes, crimes which were unequaled in the records of wickedness. Drawing similar conclusions to both men was one journalist who was outraged by the atrocities of September. In repudiating the massacres, the writer asked, How many killers must be assembled in order that a murder committed by them ceases to be a crime and becomes an act of the people's justice? A great question, but one with no easy answer. In short, one doesn't have to look hard to find perspectives that deplore and decry the massacres of September. And that isn't really surprising. But the more one looks, the more perspectives become grey. The binary good versus evil can be found, sure, but take the time to unpack more contemporary accounts and the binary views give way to something more ambiguous. Another witness who wrote of a horrible slaughter was an 18-year-old boy by the name of Edmond Jaroux. Writing to his father in Bordeaux, the young man detailed an account of mutilated bodies, open graves, and hideous scenes. Put simply, he wrote that the image of death and massacre was present everywhere in the most terrifying ways. However, unlike some of the perspectives we've already heard, Edmond Giroux proceeded to do something very different after he detailed these horrific scenes to his father. Giroux proceeded to justify them, noting that the prisons were full of thieves, assassins, Swiss guards, and of course, refractory priests. Giroux claims, quite literally, that these men intended to pillage the capital and massacre all of the residents of Paris. Clearly believing in the widespread rumours of the time, he details how the prisoners intended to break open the prisons of the city upon the arrival of the Prussians, and that the most terrible fate was planned for innocent citizens as a result of counter-revolutionary plots and conspiracies. And here is where things get interesting. This is where the reactions of everyday citizens may very well diverge from those you contemplated a few moments ago. Because while one can find examples of people being disgusted by the massacres, 
many of those examples are accompanied with a sense of acceptance. For example, the Baron Taboo records a scene where a man comforts his highly distressed wife as the two quite literally hear the distant screams of victims penetrating through the air. Taboo claims that the man told his wife, This is a very terrible business, but they are our deadly enemies, and those who are delivering the country from them are saving your life and the lives of our dear children. In an environment characterised by fear, anxiety and common beliefs in both plots and conspiracies, this sentiment was shared by others. An apprentice seamstress, for example, describes herself as shuddering with horror from the massacres, while simultaneously looking upon the murders as almost justified. Like everyone else, I was shaking with fear, lest the royalists be allowed to escape from their prison and come and kill me because I had no holy pictures to show them. While shuddering with horror, we looked upon the action as almost justified. While it was going on, we went about our own affairs, just as on any ordinary day. I find that quote absolutely fascinating. Tell me, when you thought before about how you would have responded to the massacres, how you would have reacted to the bloodshed, did you come up with going about your own affairs just as on any ordinary day? I didn't. I can't imagine doing that. Now, perhaps that's because we live in a slightly different reality to that of the average Parisian of the late 18th century. For us, there's no bread queue to line up in, modern appliances take care of the dirty work, television lets you be a witness of sorts from your own home or your office. But not for a second did I think that thousands or even hundreds of people could be put to the sword by a mob in my own city and that I would go about my daily business. But that's what happened. Some people watched the massacres, sure, but many just went on and lived their lives. Lives which some considered to be safer now that the dangers of the prisons were being properly addressed. Overall, this view of the September massacres as an unfortunate necessity was supported not just by regular citizens, but by many in the press. We discussed in the last episode how one Girondist newspaper described the scenes as an unfortunate necessity, and indeed several publications, be they Girondin, Montagnard or Independent in nature, took a similar stance. The Revolutions de Paris, for example, defended the people, for they took the extreme measure, but the only appropriate one, of forestalling the horrors that were being prepared against it and of showing itself merciless toward those who would not have shown it any mercy. In short, many contemporaries were horrified by the murders, but for a significant proportion of the populace and the press, 
That horror was also accompanied by relief, or a sense of necessity. Indeed, historian Albert Sabol asserts that, to many, brutal force seemed the supreme recourse when confronted with such an existential crisis. And make no mistake, Paris was in crisis. When the menace of the prisons was viewed as an existential threat, when the plots of counter-revolutionaries seemed to be inescapable, what other option was there than to eliminate this most real and imminent danger? Putting the gruesome business of prisoner elimination to one side, the views of many were summed up succinctly by one contemporary. Better to kill the devil before the devil kills you. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. With many convinced that the massacres were an unfortunate necessity, a necessity required to save the revolution, one can get a sense for how and why revolutionaries like Marat, Danton, and Robespierre would at various points in time defend these events. Perceived to be the people's actions, there were many in the community who were willing to accept the murders because they associated them with either safety or justice. In fact, there were some citizens who forcefully supported the murders. Rosalie Julien, for example, wrote from Paris to her husband on the 2nd of September. Julien, a committed Jacobin, denounced the wicked conspirators and defended the killings as necessary. Specifically, she described the deaths as an atrocious necessity. Having detailed to her husband that heads were cut off and that priests were massacred, she notes plainly, 
the Prussians and kings would have done as much and 1,000 times more. Given the threats listed in the Brunswick Manifesto, promising France an ever-memorable vengeance, it's not hard to see why she might have held that opinion. So, the response of contemporaries to the massacres of September were varied to say the least. While some were disgusted and outraged by the deaths, many citizens were willing to ignore their initial repulsion if it meant securing the safety of themselves, their families, and their city. While enthusiastic champions of bloodletting did not make up the majority, neither did enthusiastic detractors. The fact of the matter is that these killings were quietly accepted by the majority of Parisians, and this fact helps to explain how such a small group of assailants, perhaps numbering less than 300, could commit such killings over multiple days in a city of some 700,000 people. The assailants may have been small in number, but the silent support of many in the populace, along with perhaps the implicit support of many in governing institutions, allowed the massacres to continue for almost a week. In fact, historian Peter Kropotkin makes an interesting argument on this very point. While noting that the massacres may have been conducted by a small number of men, he argues that they were supported by a much greater multitude. Furthermore, he makes the argument that should any authority have tried to intervene, that multitude would have defended the assailants and protected those who were conducting the massacres. Historian Kropotkin writes, It is true that the number of those who did the killing in the prisons did not exceed more than 300 men, wherefore all the Republicans have been accused by some writers of cowardice for not having put a stop to it. Nothing is, however, more erroneous than this reckoning. The number of three or four hundred is correct, but it is enough to read the narratives of Weber, Mademoiselle de Tazor, Maton de la Varenne, and others, to see that if the murders were the work of a limited number of men, there were around each person and in the neighbouring streets crowds of people who approved of the massacres and who would have taken arms against any one who might have tried to prevent them. Besides, the bulletins of the sections, the attitude of the National Guard, and the attitude even of the best-known revolutionists proved that everyone understood that military intervention would have been the signal for a civil war, and no matter to which side the victory went, this would have led to massacres still more widespread and still more terrible than those in the prisons. According to anarchist historian Kropotkin, the fact that such a small number of assailants were able to conduct the massacres undisturbed is further proof that the murders were supported by a majority of Parisians. Additionally, he makes the claim that many bystanders would have intervened on behalf of the assailants should the commune, the assembly, the ministry, or anyone else have tried to put a halt to the killings. A claim that is of course impossible to verify, 
but it is an interesting perspective nonetheless. It also ties into those claims we discussed last episode, that perhaps the Commune and Danton could not have intervened in the killings, even if they had wanted to. Whatever the case, what is clear is that many contemporaries did support the murders. As we heard from eyewitnesses earlier this episode, the belief in prison rumours and months-long's obsession with counter-revolutionary plots combined with the Prussian advance to create a kill-or-be-killed mentality in the minds of many. The people of Paris were perhaps repulsed by the blood-stained streets, but they proceeded to go about their own affairs anyway. Importantly, this attitude was adopted by many in the city, regardless of their class or politics. Historian Timothy Tackett, who has written extensively about the September massacres, writes that a broad cross-section of Parisian citizenry accepted the killings as either a positive good or an unfortunate necessity. Convinced of plots to slaughter the revolution and the people of the revolutionary capital, citizens from a variety of factions and political persuasions were prepared to accept the brutal means taken to secure their own safety and that of the revolutionary cause. Critically, Tackett makes the point that the massacres were not isolated acts of violence by the enraged lower classes, as some conservative historians have said over the years, but instead a phenomenon initially supported by a broad consensus of much of the city's population. I wonder then, how does all of this compare with your thoughts earlier as to how you would have responded to the massacres? When I asked you to contemplate how you think you would have reacted, does your answer align with this broad consensus of opinion suggested by historian Tackett? Having discussed how everyday citizens responded to the killings, let us now shift our attention to how these murders changed the revolution they were seeking to protect. As you can imagine, the slaughter of half of the capital's prison population on the grounds of treason and conspiracy might be rather influential in determining the character and trajectory of a revolutionary cause, as well as a juvenile and vulnerable republic. So, how did the September massacres change the course of the revolution? We're going to be discussing three key things. Firstly, we'll discuss the impact that all of this had on the elections for and priorities of the new National Convention. Secondly, we're going to explore how these deaths helped to pave the way for the terror and its institutionalised violence in the name of the revolution's defence. Finally, we'll examine what all this bloodshed meant for the increasingly tense relationship between the Girondins and the revolutionary sans-culottes of Paris. Let's start with the convention. As a quick reminder, when the monarchy was overthrown on the 10th of August, the Legislative Assembly fared only slightly better. The change wasn't so dramatic, nor so immediate, but in the chaos of the Crown's collapse, the Assembly was forced to sign its own death warrant. In the weeks prior to the insurrection, 
calls for a new national convention had been common throughout the Jacobin Club, as well as other revolutionary societies, such as the Cordelais Club. With the new Paris Commune reigning supreme on the 10th of August, it immediately pressured the Assembly to agree to its own replacement and call elections for a new national convention. Inspired by the earlier Constitutional Convention of the United States, this body would determine the fate of France now that the king had been suspended from the throne. We'll get into the composition of the whole assembly another time, but what I want to touch on here is how the massacres impacted the elections for the convention and how they dominated the initial debates. It's perhaps no surprise that the butchering of hundreds of people may have had an impact on an election, but the nature of that impact might surprise you. And in fact, the extent of any possible impact may be a little more limited than you suspect. To discuss how the massacres impacted elections in the capital, it's important to note that these elections occurred in two stages. The first stage saw all eligible voters vote for electors. And then, in the second stage, these electors gathered together in electoral assemblies to vote for their community's deputies to the convention. This second stage is what is relevant to us. For on the 2nd of September, the same day the massacres commenced, the electoral assembly gathered in Paris. Now, there's a range of things that help to shape the delegation of deputies elected by the capital, and the massacres are just one component. The first thing to note is that this electoral assembly was held in the Jacobin Club. This was hardly neutral ground, and not just from the perspective of Fionns or others who may have harboured views in favour of resurrecting some form of constitutional monarchy. Given the ascendancy of Robespierre and the Montagnard wing of the society, the location of the vote was also detrimental to the chief rivals of the Montagnards within the Jacobin Club, that being the Girondins. In fact, the significant power of the Montagnard faction within the Parisian Jacobin Club is demonstrated by the fact that Brousseau is just weeks away from being expelled from the society. Very shortly, I will no longer have to discuss the factions within the Jacobin Club, because through a combination of expulsions and boycotting, it will only be the Montagnards that remain. Thus, the elections, held in the Jacobins and presided over in part by Robespierre, were, from the outset, not exactly the definition of impartial. The second factor influencing the elections in Paris was the fact that the Parisian Jacobins had decided amongst themselves to disregard the secret ballot. Instead, electors would have to vote for candidates by declaring their vote publicly in front of the whole electoral assembly. So, you can see why this was increasingly not a free and fair election. Imagine if voting in modern US elections happened in public, and their polling booths were in heavily partisan locations. If you favoured a candidate promoting gun control, would you really want to go and vote if you needed to publicly declare your choice at your local NRA society? 
if you favoured a Republican candidate? Would you be willing to stand up and say as much if your local polling centre was held in the meeting place of an Antifa network? Don't take these comparisons too literally, but you see my point. Historian Ippolite Tane describes the secret ballot as the last refuge of timid conservatives, and its removal, combined with the fact that this electoral assembly was being held at the Jacobin Club, hardly fostered inclusive and unbiased proceedings. But not only was the vote held in the not-so-neutral ground of the Jacobin Club, not only was the vote held in public for all to see and for all to remember, but it was held in the weeks following the first terror, following mass arrests, suppression of the free press, and of course, the harassment of any who had aligned themselves with factions opposed to the new regime. Yet, there's more, because this electoral assembly was also held on the 2nd of September. This means it was held on the day that Robespierre denounced the Girondins as traitors, and the very day the Commune issued arrest warrants for leading Girondin politicians. So, imagine for a moment that you were an elector and you wanted to vote for Brousseau, Roland, or another prominent Girondin revolutionary aligned with your own personal views. Do you think you would walk into the Jacobin Club and declare for all to hear that you were voting for Brousseau, the man Marat regularly denounces as a turncoat, the man Robespierre accuses of working for the Prussians, the man the vast majority of the attendees around you view with suspicion and disgust? Would you be willing to support a man labelled as a traitor when traitors were literally being butchered in the street just up the road? Butchered by men with the same political sympathies and affiliations as the ones which dominated the room in which you need to go to in order to declare your vote? How eager do you think you would be to cast your vote? I suspect not very much. So, perhaps it's not surprising then that Paris would elect a slate of delegates associated with the Montagnards. Not a single Girondin was elected to represent the capital. Now, it's impossible to say if this still would have occurred without the massacres. And personally, I think there's a good chance it would have. After all, the bloodshed was just one of the many elements that amounted to voter intimidation, intentional or otherwise. The assembly being held in the Jacobin Club, the menace of the first terror, even decisions by the Jacobins just to ignore the legitimacy of some electors on the grounds of previous support for the Crown or initiatives of the Fillon faction. Nothing like a casual rejection of legitimate electors to ensure free and fair elections. Thus, all of these factors played a role in suppressing dissenting voices. Furthermore, it must be noted that the Jacobin deputies elected were genuinely popular amongst the radical cohorts of Paris, and the Girondins had been losing their popularity within the capital for some time. Given this multitude of factors, 
It's possible that the outcome was already going to be an overwhelming Montagnard victory for the delegation from Paris. It's possible that the September massacres may have had little real impact on changing the outcome of the vote. What we do know is that it's logical to presume that the threat of violence, such as that dealt to the prisoners, would have had some sort of influence. While it's difficult to measure the importance of this factor, the possibility of violence is important to note nonetheless. In fact, similar threats of violence are documented as influencing electoral assemblies across the country, and a more thorough account of the oddities, absurdities and intrigues of the convention's elections will be covered in the near future. In short, it's impossible to say just to what extent these massacres influenced the outcome of the Parisian delegation to the convention, but it's certainly possible to say that they were not conducive to free and fair elections. However, while the exact extent of the massacre's influence on the convention's elections in the capital is difficult to measure, one thing which is much clearer is the bloodshed's impact on the new legislature's agenda. As previously discussed, the Girondins of the convention, who will be elected as representatives of various regions outside the capital, will seek to use these murders as a weapon against their Montagnat rivals. As a result, many of the debates of the convention in its first few months will focus on these murders, especially as both the Girondins and the Montagnards seek to gain mastery over the new body. In future episodes, we will continue to see the massacres infiltrate debates and influence decisions, even as other topics dominate the agenda. Historian Charles Hazen writes on the impact of the murders on the new convention. One consequence of these massacres was to discredit the cause of the revolution. Another was to precipitate a sanguinary struggle between the Girondists, who wished to punish the Septemberists, and particularly their instigator Marat and the Jacobins, who either defended them or assumed an attitude of indifference, urging that France had more important work to do than to spend its time trying to avenge men who were, after all, aristocrats. The struggles between these factions were to fill the early months of the convention, which met on September 20. 1792, the elections having taken place under the gloomy and terrifying impressions produced by the September massacres. So, the September massacres not only influenced the elections for the convention, which were occurring at the same time, but more importantly, they set the agenda for the new legislature. Ultimately, we're going to witness an all-out war between the Girondins and the Montagnards, between two factions with very different visions for the new French Republic. As this conflict escalates, we will continue to see the shadow of September shape attempts by various individuals to discredit, weaken, and potentially even eliminate their factional opponents. But the composition and agenda of the new National Convention was not the only thing to be shaped by the September massacres. With more than a thousand people being butchered due to the popular presumption of their treason, 
This event is often looked upon by some historians as a key milestone on the road towards the Reign of Terror. Why is this the case? Well, to set the scene, I can think of no better quote than the one often attributed to Alexandre Ledru Rollin, a prominent French revolutionary of 1848. So, just to be clear, Ledru Rollin is associated with the Second French Republic, because why have one French Republic when you can have like five of them? According to legend, Ledru Rollin is attributed with saying, There go the people. I must follow them, for I am their leader. I can think of no more relevant a saying for what we're about to discuss. You see, the people, and by that I mean a small subset of the people, had undeniably declared themselves in favour of extremely violent measures in order to save the revolution. Members of the National Guard, the Provincial Federes, and the Parisian Sans-Culottes had partaken in, or at a minimum supported, the massacres of September. Now, this was the same cohort of Parisians who were critical for the revolution's survival. It was they who toppled the monarchy. It was they who supported the new commune. It was they who would take the fight to the Prussians, the Austrians, the émigrés, the priests, the Borg, the Sith, the Locust, the Covenant, the people who walked too slowly on the sidewalk. It was they, the revolution's champions, who would take the fight to the numerous enemies of the people. The power of the revolutionary movement had declared itself in favour of popular violence, of revolutionary justice, of whatever means were necessary to defend the nation against all threats, foreign and domestic, real or perceived. Given this declaration, this put the so-called leaders of the people in a tricky situation. There goes the people. Would their leaders follow them? According to historian Marisa Liston, the massacres were a pivotal moment on the path to the terror, for it demonstrated that the Parisian militants were ready to take the initiative in violent defence of the revolution. With the massacres perpetrated by the revolution's most zealous and committed cohorts, and being supported by some of the most radical clubs, sections and journalists, these events demanded an immediate response from those who aspired to lead the revolutionary cause. According to historian Liston, the violence prompted revolutionary leaders to decide almost immediately where they stood on the question of popular violence. Would they accept this violence and thus legitimise it? Or would they reject it and place themselves in a position where they rejected and repudiated the will of the people? Or, perhaps more accurately, the will of the critically important subset of the people who were actually willing to defend the revolution? Liston asserts that the Jacobins, specifically the Montagnards, chose to align themselves with the Paris militants, and thus chose to align themselves with championing the legitimacy and necessity of such violence. It's for this reason that leading Jacobins, such as Robespierre and Danton, would defend the massacres in the weeks and months that followed. Over time, this acceptance of popular justice and revolutionary violence by the Jacobins had a vitally important impact 
on the character of the revolution. You see, having accepted the legitimacy of revolutionary violence, this position prompted leading revolutionaries to try to harness it, control it, institutionalize it. Such was a natural response from those in power if they were not going to try to suppress it. Those leaders would try to monopolize revolutionary violence for two key reasons. Firstly, in order to weaponize such a powerful and potent force against the revolution's numerous enemies. But secondly, in order to inoculate themselves, as the presently established authorities, from other revolutionaries who would see yet another violent change in government. After all, what was going to stop yet another revolution? Nothing. Failure to adequately control the violent impulses of Paris could see them overthrow the constituted authorities once more. Thus, in accepting the necessity and righteousness of such violent measures, the way was open for the revolution's leaders to institutionalise that violence. Only through controlling, channeling, directing the revolution's violent impulses could the authorities simultaneously address the threats of both counter-revolutionaries as well as other revolutionaries. Historian Jeremy Popkin writes as to how the massacres helped to pave the way for the terror, and I've included a longer preamble to help tie in the discussions and debates over the last two episodes. Although the news of the surrender of Verdun precipitated them, the massacres were not just an expression of panic or popular brutality. The fact that the popular courts set up in the prisons spared inmates who were being held for common law crimes or failure to pay their debts showed the participants' political purpose. Like the insurrection of August 10, the prison killings were organised by militants from the Sankulot movement, men who had come to distrust not only all those who had belonged to the privileged classes under the old regime, but also the more educated and privileged members of the Third Estate. Faced with the possibility that enemy armies might reach Paris, Sankulot activists meant to show the political leaders, who were struggling to fill the vacuum created by the fall of the monarchy, what could happen to them if they showed any sign of weakness. Although the number of those directly involved in the killings was relatively small, one contemporary estimated it at no more than 150, the reaction of the crowds that gathered outside the prisons suggests that they had broad support. Even women demanded punishment for those accused of opposing the revolution. On September 2, as the executions were starting, a delegation of women urged the Legislative Assembly to protect inmates who were being held for not having paid fees to wet nurses, but to destroy all the others. However crude their understanding of politics may have been, a considerable part of the population had come to believe that the basic achievements of the revolution were in mortal danger, and that even the most drastic measures were justified to defend them. The lesson was not lost on the deputies elected to the new national convention, who were about to take on the challenge of defending the embattled revolution. Six months later, with the memory of the September massacres vivid in his mind, Danton would support the re-establishment of the Revolutionary Tribunal that had first been created in August 1792 by crying out, 
let us be terrifying in order to spare the people from having to be so. The September massacres thus opened the way to the more systematic and controlled but equally troubling excesses of the reign of terror. So, according to historian Jeremy Popkin, as well as historian Marisa Liston, the September massacres opened the way to the reign of terror, enforcing the revolutionary leaders to take a firm stand in favour or against the massacres. The violent measures deployed by the people became legitimised and institutionalised as the Jacobins not only defended these measures, but came to use them as a means of dominating the organs of power. In legitimising the most drastic measures, in sanctioning revolutionary violence as a means of saving the revolution from the enemy within, the massacres paved the way for similar measures to be taken by the authorities themselves. In the future, it would be the government of the people, rather than just the people, which would exact an uncompromising and bloody justice in the name of the nation's defence. Of course, in an environment characterised by fear and conspiracies, it must be noted that this meant justice not only against genuine counter-revolutionaries, such as committed ultra-royalists, but it also meant using force against those who were perceived to be enemies of the people. Traitors, intriguers, false patriots, a group which may merely consist of more moderate or more radical revolutionaries, but committed revolutionaries nonetheless. As the distrust and suspicion of the revolution's growing factionalism mixed with the acceptability and eventually the desirability of revolutionary violence, the scene was increasingly set for the gruesome excesses of the terror. Hello everybody, this is a quick ad for Grey History. I desperately need your help to keep Grey History on the air. These episodes take more than 50 hours to produce, 50, and I won't be able to keep bringing you Grey History without your support. I've quit my job, I've thrown caution to the wind, I'm giving you everything to bring you more Grey History more often, but I need your help to make that sustainable. Patreons enjoy an ad-free feed, so no mid-episode interruptions like this one, as well as have access to all the bonus content, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes videos. Remember, the next episode will be a bonus episode on the Corsican Revolution. So please, if you're enjoying Grey History, help keep it going and support the podcast today. Yet, legitimising, normalising, and even helping to institutionalise revolutionary violence wasn't the only way that the bloodshed of September helped to shape the trajectory of the French Revolution. Critically, while the Jacobins, specifically the Montagnards, came to champion its use, another faction reached a very different conclusion. That faction was the chief rivals of the Montagnards. That faction was the Girondins. According to historian Michael Sydenham, the events of early September helped to fundamentally alter the relationship between the Girondins and the Parisian radicals. The Girondins had had strained or even hostile relationships with the city's various radical cohorts for some time, but the slaughter of hundreds in the streets frightened and disgusted the Girondins in power. According to historian Sydenham, 
the September massacres awoke an intense dislike for the Commune, the Capital, the Jacobins, and the Populace. Specifically, the radical sans-culottes, who so often claimed to represent the people, although we know in reality were a subset of the people. Albeit a very vocal, very important, and very energetic subset. Furthermore, according to historian Sydenham, not only did these events awaken this intense dislike for the key revolutionary cohorts of the capital, but it also helped the Girondins embrace a sudden respect for law and order. Now, I want to explore both of these points further. If we start with the former, that the massacres awoke an intense dislike for the commune, the capital, the Jacobins and the populace, it would be reasonable to challenge Sydenham's assertion that the massacres awoke this intense dislike. As has been discussed in previous episodes, the relationship that leading Girondins had had with these various cohorts had been souring for some time. For example, the most radical members of the revolutionary press, including but not limited to Marat, had been assailing the Girondins relentlessly. Furthermore, in the case of the upstart Paris Commune, the relationship between the Girondins and the Montagnard-minded municipality had just started off sour to begin with, when the new body declared its own legitimacy, overthrew the monarchy, and proceeded to dictate orders to the Girondin-dominated assembly. But, to focus on whether or not this was the moment an intense dislike was awoken, is to focus on the wrong thing. It would be to focus on the trees and miss the forest. What matters is that the Girondins will walk away from this event with a deep distrust of everything to do with Paris. The city's commune, the Jacobin Club, even the Saint-Culottes. In the eyes of the Girondins, these revolutionary actors had all contributed to a horrific murder. Not only had these groups either encouraged or failed to prevent the massacres, but some had even helped to perpetrate them. Furthermore, some Girondins suspected that this bloodshed had been meant for them. Remember, leading Girondins would come to believe that Robespierre and his allies in the Commune had tried to have them killed through their failed attempt to arrest the Girondins on the day the massacres began. The result of all of this was that many Girondins, most of whom were not from Paris, came to view the capital with suspicion, with fear, with contempt. Given that the people of Paris had the power to overthrow governments, and had done so twice in the last four years, this development was by no means inconsequential. Historian Marisa Liston writes of the implications of the souring relationship between the Girondins and the radical cohorts of Paris. It was above all the bloodshed in the September massacres that swung the Girondins definitively against the Paris militants. That blood swelled to a river dividing the two factions. The Girondin leaders' conviction that their own lives had been endangered in the massacres added considerably to their fear and hostility. They were subject to growing fear that street violence would be turned on them, stirred up by journalists popular with the militants. So, according to historian Marisa Liston, it's here, at the September massacres, 
that we get a definitive break between the Girondin faction and the Parisian radicals, and most importantly, between the Girondins and the Sans-Culottes. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't already a widening break between these two groups, but the bloodshed of September, and the belief that the bloodshed was meant to include them, proved to be the final breaking point, at least according to historian Liston and historians who agree with her. This is a major development, because going forward, the Girondins, who would seek to lead the nation after the new convention is elected, have no prospect of leading the capital. Instead, it will be their factional opponents, the Montagnards and other revolutionary groups which embraced revolutionary violence, that will come to lead the radical cohorts of Paris. Considering the revolutions of 1789 and 1792 had occurred because of the capital, the gulf between the Girondins and the city's radicals is critically important. As the relationship between the two continues to deteriorate, these tensions will come to dominate the course of the entire revolution. Tensions which, according to some historians, became irreversible and unavoidable as a result of the September massacres. However, before we move on, I do want to make the point that none of this was preordained, nor was it initially clear that the Girondin deputies would come to have such a hostile relationship with the city's Saint-Culottes or the clubs or publications which channeled their views. If we take a stroll down memory lane, one might remember that in 1790 and in 1791, one of the many revolutionary clubs and societies promoting a more radical and inclusive revolution was the Cercle Social, otherwise known as the Social Club. Occasionally working alongside the more famous Cordelier Club, the Cercle Social, dominated by Brousseau and his allies, promoted several radical and revolutionary causes. This included universal male suffrage, but also republican ideas, women's rights, and the abolishment of slavery. At times, Brousseau and his associates would even combine forces with other clubs and societies to push a truly revolutionary agenda. For example, Brousseau worked alongside Danton and the Cordelay Club in mid-1791 to push the issue of dethronement and republic in the aftermath of the king's flight to Varennes. Thus, just more than a year prior to the September massacres, these revolutionaries, later known commonly as either the Brissoans or the Girondins, were at the forefront of radical revolutionary policies and seeking to advance that agenda. Joining the Legislative Assembly in October 1791, the Brissoans held sway amongst the radical cohorts of Paris for some time, especially as their call for revolutionary war remained popular. Proof of the popularity of the Girondins can be seen throughout the first half of 1792, including during the famous demonstration of 20 June. If you recall, that demonstration saw a crowd of armed sans-culottes break into the palace, corner the king, and force him to wear a liberty cap and drink toasts to the nation. Well, what was one of the principal demands of those demonstrators? Oh, that's right, to recall the Girondin ministers that Louis had dismissed the week prior. To recall Roland, 
the man who was reinstated as Minister of the Interior after the fall of the monarchy. Furthermore, the other demands, such as repealing the vetoes protecting refractory priests and preventing federés from gathering in the capital, were all policies championed by the Girondins in the Legislative Assembly and clearly supported strongly by the revolutionary Saint-Culottes of Paris. So you see, it's not like the Girondins and the revolutionary Saint-Culottes were enemies from the outset. Instead, several key events soured their relationship. To name just a few, firstly, the Girondins had failed to embrace dethronement, reluctantly accepting the 10th of August after it was a done deal. Furthermore, the Girondins of the Legislative Assembly had chosen only to suspend the king rather than to immediately dethrone him, and some had even argued in favour of the monarchy in the final days before its fall. Secondly, the Girondins had failed to embrace the Revolutionary Tribunal, as demanded by the sections and the new commune, establishing the body only after being threatened with another insurrection. This, along with their hesitations regarding dethronement, made the Girondins appear either corrupt, duplicitous, or just disinterested in both pursuing justice as well as defending the people against the numerous conspiracies and plots which endangered the revolution. Finally, the Girondins had failed. They had failed to deliver on their promise of an easy and quick war. They had failed to lessen the pain of inflation and food shortages. And they had failed to respect the will of the people when they attempted to dissolve the new Paris Commune at the end of August. All of these factors, and more, helped to create tension between the Girondins and the Saint-Culottes, as well as the institutions, societies and publications who championed their interests. However, while the relationship had been souring over the course of the summer of 1792, according to some historians, it was the September massacres which proved to be the tipping point. It was the enthusiastic embrace of popular violence as a legitimate means to protect the revolution, which provided the final break between the radicals of Paris and the more moderate Girondins. Often representing less radical regions from the departments of France, these deputies were simply not willing to follow the demands of the capital. The violent means of the Saint-Culottes proved to be a bridge too far. Having once sought to position themselves as the champions of the people, a very real break was servicing between those self-styled champions and the expressed desires of the Saint-Culottes. As the revolutionary cohorts of Paris continued to radicalise, and as they began to better articulate their own platform, the demands of the Saint-Culottes, including revolutionary violence, was increasingly incompatible with what the Girondins were willing to provide. As a result, their relationship fundamentally changed. Historian Gary Cates comments on this development and asserts that it was only after the September massacres that the Girondins gave up trying to represent and carry favour with the Parisian Saint-Culottes. Between 1789 and 1791, the Cercle Social and the Cordelier Club, spokesmen for the Saint-Culottes, cooperated to a great extent in leading the campaign 
for a more democratic regime, first during the Paris Municipal Revolution and then during the crisis surrounding the king's flight to Varennes. In 1792, when the split between the Girondins and the more radical Jacobins surfaced, the Girondins tried hard to retain the support of the Sans-Culottes through publications like Louvet's Sentinel. Only after the September massacres did the Girondins finally renounce the Sans-Culottes movement. Thus, while historians generally have viewed the rift between the Sans-Culottes and the Girondins as inevitable, given their differing political and economic ideas, the Girondins, at least until the fall of 1792, believed that some kind of Sans-Culottes constituency could be maintained. So, the September massacres helped to sever not only any chance of rapprochement between the Montagnards and the Girondins, but it debatably proved to be a decisive moment in the Girondins' relationship with the Sans-Culottes. Critically, this antagonism between the Girondins and the Sans-Culottes was by no means preordained. Only months before, the Girondins and the Sans-Culottes had seemingly enjoyed a strong and considerable relationship. It was only after the Sans-Culottes started to demand increasingly radical social, economic and political measures to rectify the ills of the country that their relationship with the more idealistic, more moderate Girondins became increasingly difficult to maintain. A difficulty which turned near impossible as the people embraced violent revolutionary means. Thus, some historians assert that it was only after the September massacres that a definitive split occurs between the Girondins and the Sans-Culottes. A split that would escalate until it came to dominate the revolution. Going forward, as the Montagnards and the Girondins openly warred amongst themselves in the convention, only one had maintained the support of the most powerful and active revolutionary cohort of the capital. It was this cohort which had overthrown crowns in the past, and it was this cohort which would overthrow deputies in the future. Moving on, the second point that historian Michael Sydenham made is that all of these events inspired a rather sudden respect for law and order amongst the Girondin faction. The discovery is ironic, to say the least. You see, this respect for law and order had been noticeably missing in the months and years prior to the insurrection of 10 August. That is to say, prior to when the Girondins found themselves in positions of power. If we take a second stroll down memory lane, we'll remember that after the flight to Ferenc in mid-1791, Brousseau and many of his associates had pushed for dethronement and even the establishment of a republic. The events were such a threat to the established order that the municipal government sent in the troops, and the end result was the bloody Champ de Mars massacre and martial law. No love of law and order there. Furthermore, in addition to organising demonstrations and protests in 1791 in the wake of the king's failed escape, the Girondins had no qualms embracing questionable means of pressuring the crown in 1792, when many were themselves deputies in the Legislative Assembly. Remember, the demonstration of 20 June 1792, which resulted in the king being courted in the palace by a heavily armed mob? Well, 
that crowd was motivated by, encouraged by, supported by, you guessed it, the Girondins. Girondins who were seeking to have their own reinstalled to a position of power and were willing to support violence, or at least the threat of violence, as a means to achieve their own ends. But with the king now gone and the Girondins now in a position of power, controlling both the legislative assembly and nominally the ministry, this group of politicians had a sudden change of heart. This change of heart would continue as the Girondins sought to dominate the newly elected National Convention. In the future, any insurrection would no longer target the Fionns or the court, but the Girondins themselves. Occupying positions of power, and increasingly conservative when compared to those still in the arena of revolutionary politics, the Girondins knew that they were no longer the beneficiaries of revolutionary unrest, but instead its potential victims. The king was in prison. Leading fions of the former National Assembly were either in exile or in chains. Former ministers and officials had been slaughtered in the streets during the September massacres. The Girondins were very aware of the fate of the men who had sat where they were now sitting. Of those who had once held power, but who had failed to maintain it. Thus, the Girondins foresaw that they needed to control the passions of Paris. Failure to do so would result in their demise. Given this need, and given the scale of the bloodshed of September, all this did was further reinforce the Girondins' distrust of the radical cohorts of Paris, of their factional enemies which held sway in the clubs and in the sections, of the Saint-Culottes, who increasingly supported their Montagnard rivals and who were so critical in shaping key revolutionary events. It's for this reason that historian Sidenham suggests that the September massacres inspired a sudden respect for law and order amongst the Girondins, one that I think is filled with irony. In conducting research for this episode, I came across a rather amusing quote which so perfectly summarises the change in the Girondins' position. While comparing the 10th of August to the September massacres, and while seeking to discredit the latter while still defending the former, the Girondin journalist Louvet stated, If the insurrection against despotism is sacred, the insurrection against the Republic is blasphemous. The first is virtuous, the second is criminal. A few short sentences perfectly encapsulates the sudden reversal of the Girondins, as well as their existential problem. Having encouraged and benefited from revolutionary unrest for years, the Girondins had to try to put the genie back in the bottle. And that wasn't going to be easy. Not everyone would agree that insurrection against the Republic was blasphemous nor criminal. In fact, if the Republic was in the hands of the Girondins, men accused of being self-serving traitors by their enemies, well, you could guarantee that someone would argue that insurrection was necessary and righteous. Thus, the problem facing the Girondins was clear. 
unless the authorities could regain their monopoly on force, the Girondins would follow the Fionns and the court into the dustbin of history. We will see them grapple with this problem in the episodes to come. In summary, the impact of the September massacres on the trajectory and character of the revolution is tremendous. Not only did they shape the composition and priorities of the new national convention, but they also transformed the relationship between the key revolutionary factions and the revolution's most active and critical supporters. For the Montagnards, the embrace and subsequent defence of the massacres strengthened their increasing alignment with the city's Saint-Culottes, who, along with the smaller radical cohorts of the capital, were the power behind the revolution. The opposite was true for the Girondins, whose opposition to revolutionary violence helped to entrench a growing gulf between them and their once enthusiastic supporters. Supporters they would desperately need in their coming struggle with their Montagnard rivals. That gulf between the Girondins and the Saint-Culottes was not the only division solidified by the murders of September. With the Girondin leadership convinced that Robespierre had tried to have them killed, and with these deputies determined to hold leading Montagnard revolutionaries responsible for the bloodshed, the massacres fundamentally shaped the hostile and bitter relationship between the revolution's leading factions. A relationship that would dominate the convention and the course of the entire revolution. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, the massacres helped to legitimise and perpetuate revolutionary violence. With the Jacobins deciding to embrace these actions, the door was open to institutionalise such measures in the name of justice and the revolution's defence. Interestingly, such a pathway was made easier by the relative acceptance of the massacres by a silent majority in Paris. Considered a necessary evil to protect the nation from the horrors of tyranny and counter-revolution, many citizens were willing to turn a blind eye to another kind of horror. The horrors of September. Taken altogether, the September massacres had a profound impact on the revolution's character and trajectory. Encapsulating all of these effects better than anything else is perhaps the succinct justification of the massacres that we heard earlier. Better to kill the devil before the devil kills you. In a revolution menaced by a multitude of threats, in an environment characterised by fear and conspiracy, in an atmosphere where factionalism reigned supreme, there was no shortage of devils. And thus, there would be no shortage of killings. Thank you for listening to episode 41, The September Massacres Part 3. The next episode will focus on the Corsican Revolution and the following Corsican Republic. So get ready for that bonus episode as I think it's going to be a great one. The events of the Corsican Revolution are actually more influential than you may suspect on not only the French Revolution, but also the American Revolution. So I do think there will be a few surprises in store for you there. When we return to the main narrative in episode 43, we're going to be discussing the invasions of France and Poland. 
I'm really looking forward to this as it will be the first episode in quite some time where we take a step back from the minutia in Paris and look at what's occurring across the entire continent. So I can't wait to bring you that one in about a month. The episode extra for this episode will be a video covering the last three parts on the September massacres, explaining my approach, my thoughts, and elaborating on some points that I left out in the last three episodes. Until the next main episode, if you want to enjoy more Grey History, as well as keep the show going, well then I do need your support. These episodes take more than 50 hours to produce, and it's just not sustainable without the support of listeners such as yourself. So please, support the show today. As always, thank you so much to all the Patreon supporters of the show, with a warm welcome to the new sponsors of the podcast, and a special thank you to the extra generous Heroes of the Revolution, Brian, Jinx, Eric, and Christy. Thank you for listening, stay safe, please share the show with everybody and anybody, and have a great day.